What's up, K Corner Podcast? How are we doing today? Welcome back to another episode. Firstly, I'd like to talk to you guys about a few things. So just some bookkeeping agenda story note taking. So I am going to put up a poll. Um, the poll is going to be, do you want me to record uh, uh, the first preview game, which would be Michigan versus Georgia, because that's the game I'm going to be most importantly watching. I think it's going to be the better of the two games, hopefully, uh, for my sake. Um, next week, Wednesday, so I, I have a weekend to kind of go through stuff, filter through, look at some numbers, look at some style plays. I've watched Georgia, I want to say four times. I've watched Michigan probably every weekend. So I, I want to watch some some Florida game or some Georgia games, see the games they struggled in, see the games that they really, really poured it on, and then talk about it. Or do you want me to do it much closer to the actual date? So that will be a poll that will be going out today, either next week, Wednesday, or much closer to the game. Um, Next Monday, I will not be uploading. I'm going to the Monday night football game between the Rams and the Cardinals. I will probably have a Tuesday upload because of that. So instead of uploading on on Monday, I'll upload Tuesday uh, and and cover in-depth on the game. And my goal... Um, on the Georgia game is like literally 25 to 30 minutes diving in, looking at the nooks and the crannies of how the game's going to kind of go. And the reason why I'm saying Wednesday for that is because next week, Friday, we have bowl season starting and I want to be able to cover some of the bowls in the upcoming week before I get another podcast out. So the only NCAA football stuff I'm going to talk about today is the Army-Navy game. I am going to hold off on talking about the ESPN. Eh, no, no, I'm going to talk about the ESPN All-American Awards. Um, I don't follow the Athletic and I don't pay money to watch the Athletic, so I'm not going to follow the Athletic, but I'm going to use the ESPN All-American Awards. There's been freshman All-American honors, so I want to talk about that, talk about some of the guys, what, what we kind of saw. Did it make sense? Um, obviously, I talked about the Heisman ad nauseum. I'm not going to talk about the finalists for some of the uh, position player awards. I'm going to talk about the finalist and the award winner after the awards are officially announced. At the same notion, uh, then I'll move on from college football. I'll be talking about the Monday night football game, the Thursday night preview game. And um, moving forward... Uh, I'm going to be discussing more NCAA basketball. Now, I'm not going to do it today. Probably Friday, I'm going to get into it. The reason for that is because I like covering it in, in weeks because college basketball is played usually on Sundays and Tuesdays. I, I believe is most... most or, or is it Saturdays? Tuesdays and Saturdays or Saturdays or Tuesdays or Sundays. I can't remember the schedule. I always forget after not being in it, but that way I can update you guys on two games, on the way conferences are looking, on how teams necessarily played each other over that time frame. So that's my goal for that. I'm going to cover the wings today, and I'm going to cover NBA. I'm going to talk about standings, games, matchups, players who've been impressing, players who've been struggling. So I'm going to spend a good amount of time talking about the NBA today. Also Friday, I'll be covering F1. So like I said, if you want me to preview the Georgia-Michigan game next Wednesday, I'll be putting a poll out. Please vote because your interest is absolutely important to me because I can do it much closer to the game. 
Obviously, before the game, I will have some comments, some notions, but my main coverage would be like probably a 30-minute block segment where I talk about each team's strengths and weaknesses, things I've seen uh, breaking down some of their plays, some of their highlights, some of their lowlights, things that I've seen teams get on them, seems and vice versa from there. Obviously, I know Michigan much better, but I will be looking through Georgia, and so you can basically let me know on that. Then the following, probably Wednesday, I'll do Alabama-Cincinnati. I will be covering other bowl games like I stated, but those are the main two that I want to focus on to actually have like 30-minute chunk segments. Other than that, I will be moving on and into kind of looking at what bowl games are coming up and previewing before they happen. But with that being said, let's get on to recording the podcast here. So with without further ado, let's get into the Army and Navy game. So let's get into it. So the Army-Navy game is always one of those fun games where it kind of takes you back and you have to reimagine football as it used to be. Not what it currently is, definitely not. Um, obviously, these guys running the, the triple option veer approach to running the game with all of their skinny and, and swift guys that have to eventually go fight for this country, it, it makes a lot of sense that they're running an offense that usually takes advantage of you not having 360-pound offensive linemen. They shoot ankles a lot. They, they run a, a particular scheme that's very difficult to game plan for, but when they're playing, this Army and Navy team are playing each other, they are playing someone who runs exactly the same, not exactly the same, but very similar offenses. So sometimes you see a team like Navy, who's 2-8 and eight at this point, playing against Army, who's 8-2, and two, and you're like, ah, these guys don't have a damn chance. Like, obviously, obviously Navy is going to be the winner of this game, or sorry, I apologize for that. Obviously, Army is going to be the winner of this game, because why wouldn't they be? But what you or they're both one is one is eight and three, the other three is eight. Sorry, not two and eight. I, I knew they were kind of opposite rankings or opposite records, but it when you look at it and look at the way that they both play against each other, they're very familiar. Their defense is seeing it all the time in practice. Their defense is seeing it all the time in fills. They know how to scheme against it. So sometimes these games are much closer than normal. I will say that Army has been dominating the series. But one of the best things about this series, regardless of whether you really like football or not, is the jerseys. These jerseys are absolutely incredible year in and year out. They have some of the, the, the best designs that I've ever seen. Sometimes it confuses me with the fact that these jerseys are, are made by the same company that makes some of the MLB City jerseys this past year. It's like, so you're able to create something this unique, this creative with this much symbolism, but you can barely get a weird color scheme. You know, you have you have ghost and faded letters on the San Francisco Giant jersey. It, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. But you got to go check out these jerseys. They're absolutely incredible. Both teams always do a tremendous job on looking spiffy. spiffy. Sorry about that. Spiffy in these uniforms. I will say, without a doubt, that this team... Army is probably going to beat the crap out of Navy. The line's at 7.5, and, and they've dominated the series the last few years. But you never know what's going to happen. It is a big rivalry game. I mean, it literally has its own weekend on the calendar. And Army 
has to win this game in hopes of going to their next game. Um, with a with it with the win, right? You don't want to finish your season and then have to go play again, and you you didn't just win your last game. I believe they're playing in the Armed Forces Bowl or something like that. Either them or Air Force usually plays. But what I will say is that there's never a, a lack of funness to this game. The president is usually there at least one out every four years. They go and have a fantastic time. Um, not only that, not only is the president there, but it's it's very patriotic, very fun. I mean, these guys are eventually going to go fight for our country. Obviously, we just pulled out of Afghanistan. You know, all the lives we've lost there, all the Afghan lives that have been lost. It, it, it's always tough sometimes realizing how many more Afghanistan soldiers died compared to United States soldiers. And then there's some pretty indecent comments about how The Afghanistan soldiers didn't care as much and they wouldn't have been beaten. And sometimes that falls in, in, in bad taste. But overall, in what we kind of need to get from this is that these guys are, are finding themselves in a position that they get to be on the center stage. Now, these are the guys, probably not them because they're probably going to be officers and captains and stuff like that because they went to school and they're smart as shit because they're all at West Point and or... I don't even know the other place, but <laughs> uh, what what we have to kind of realize too at the same notion is that these guys, you know, may at one time have to put their life on the line for this country. So let's respect and give them all our admiration. But this is an absolutely every single time. It's a super, super fun game. A lot of energy, even if the game isn't that close or isn't, isn't even that good of a game. Sometimes it's like 13 to six and there's been four field goals kicked, you know, and it isn't like a great game, but it's still fun because you get to watch these guys who are eventually going to be fighting for us getting after it. So please turn on that game. It's on CBS at one o'clock on Saturday. It gets its own week by itself. One of the best moments and best times in all of football. Moving on from that, we're going to be talking about ESPN's uh, football postseason All-American team. So Obviously, with all American teams, they're going to be labeling the best at every single position and really be going through and over everyone that they think, you know, deserves to be recognized at their position. So sometimes when everyone talks about the Heisman or the Blitnikoff or this one or that one, I don't really focus on that. What I focus on is all American. Are you, were you, were you, labeled All-American by ESPN? Were, were you labeled this, there, and that? Because even though ESPN has bias in naming who they want to name, it's at every single position. So they got to find a way to put someone possibly they like better. It's not like, hey, here's four categories, and we simply put three quarterbacks in there because quarterbacks put up decent to good numbers, and all the voters are 70 years old, and they're like, I can't believe someone threw for 3,000 yards this year. That is incredible. And so... When you look at it from like a real standpoint is we're really recognizing who's the best at the position and obviously their second team and there's freshman All-American uh, that you can kind of look over. But first for first team All-American, Bryce Young, quarterback, Alabama, um, Tua and Mac Jones all played quarterback, but Young might be one of the first quarterbacks to win the Heisman. I think he probably 
racked it up. He's second in the FBS in total QBR. 68% of his passes completed for 4,300 yards and 43 touchdowns with just four interceptions. And in the SEC championship game, he had a hell of a run. Uh, for running back, Kenneth Walker, Wake Forest transfer, obviously a snub in the Heisman voting we've all talked about a lot of times, but All-American absolutely incredible honor that he gets to know that maybe I wasn't invited to New York in a popularity contest, but in a how good are you at your position contest, they know I'm the best. Sean Tucker out of Syracuse. You haven't heard a lot of lot out of Syracuse, um, mostly because they're dog water in and out every year and they play in the ACC, who's not very good either. But he ran for 1,496 yards, set a mark with nine 100-yard games, including seven straight. Um, he also set a became the first Syracuse player to have 100 yards rushing and 100 yards receiving in the same game, setting it against Albany, who's also in New York. But uh, he broke freshman uh, Joe Morris's 42-year-old record for rushing yards in a season. So pretty good numbers. I didn't go over Kenneth Walker's numbers, but he had 1,600 yards, 18 rushing touchdowns. Uh, he had to work for his for much of his production. Obviously, us guys knowing it, he had an awful O-line. He had 990 yards after his first contact, which was most among FBS. He evaded tackles 48 times, second most among running backs, and his 38 broken tackles were tied for third most. So he made guys miss, got yards after contact, obviously, and was just an all-around great running back. So... Talking about an MSU guy immediately moving over to a Pittsburgh guy, which is funny because they're playing in the bowl game. So Addison um, and quarterback Kenny Pickett were 1-2. Addison led FBS players with 17 touchdown catches, which is absolutely incredible. He did this on 93 receptions. He'd even break the 100 receptions yard mark, yard mark. But he had 1,479 yards. He has an explosion in a can. He uh, had four scoring receptions against Virginia that tied a school record. This dude is an absolute freak. Next, moving on. This one was what I was surprised about. First off, when they're doing ESPN uh, rankings, why are there only two receivers? Like, I get we have two running backs, but it's way less often that you should recognize two running backs and not three receivers. That's just a small point. Most teams play with a minimum of three receivers on the field, if not four at times. Um, but David Bell from the Purdue Boilermakers, star wide receivers, on three games against top five opponents, Bell had 33 receptions for 560 yards and two scores. Um, he obviously had the hell of a game against Michigan State, 11 catches, 200 yards. Uh, Bell ranked second among FBS players with 8.5 Catches per game, fourth with 116 yards per game, and seventh with 93 receptions, and ninth with 1,200 yards. The unanimous name was already announced. He will enter the NFL draft. So this dude and Jordan Addison didn't. Neither of them broke uh, 100 receptions, but both of them had over a thousand yards. So doing incredible job, being explosion. We already knew that. Next up, tight end Brock Bowers. This dude is an absolute freak. Um. I know Michigan has to play them, and this is a uh, matchup nightmare. He's huge. He's fast. He's strong. He led Georgia with 47 receptions for 791 yards. He had 11 touchdown receptions. This is out of a tight end, right? Some of the times you're blocking, you're not running routes, especially after with Georgia, with George Pickens being out injured. This is a guy that's probably receiving double teams at times. This is a guy that is getting bracketed. This is guys that he's running screens to because he's such an athlete. They're running jump balls to. This guy is absolutely incredible. 
He set an SEC championship record receptions for a tight end with 10 catches and 139 yards and one score and a loss. Um, moving through um, linemen, I'm not going to, you know, talk about them a whole hell of a lot, but Evan Neal from Alabama, 6'7", 365 pounds, offensive tackle, played absolutely incredible. Zion Johnson out of Boston College, he didn't even start um, playing football till his senior season in high school, but I mean... Sometimes people who start late don't have the wear and tear on their body, and he is ranked the number two guard available for the 2022 class. Shout out to Tyler Lindenbaum, Iowa Hawkeyes center. Lindenbaum moved over his after his freshman year from the D-line to the O-line. He's going to be probably, he is one of the top first-round draft picks, and he is the number one setter for 2022. Absolutely incredible offensive lineman performance this year, although he did get dominated in Big Ten Championship game by Mozzie Smith. Watch the film. Kenyon Green out of Texas A&M. Um, Texas A&M had a very good line this last year. Um, the O-line didn't allow a sack in Texas A&M's 41-38 loss against Alabama. He's ranked the number one guard prospect. Um, Charles Cross, Mississippi State Bulldogs, Bulldogs offensive tackle. He played left tackle under Mike's leech pass, off, pass happy Offense crosses under more pressure than perhaps any other offensive lineman at PS. Markley, he allows just five pressures and one sacks and 682 pass blocks, which we do have to realize that not all of those are true pass blocking, right? Like screens count as pass blocking, but they're not really pass blocking. Unless If you let up a sack on a screen, you're doing something, or if you get a hold on a screen, you're doing something wrong. And this is an offense that instead of running the ball, they will screen uh, consistently. All-purpose offensive player, Jamison Williams. Uh, this is the Ohio State guy. Jamison Williams had 68 receptions for 1,400 yards and 15 touchdowns. His 21.3 yards per catch were second most among FPF players with more than 30 receptions. He only had three drops and 107 targets. He was third in FPS with 690 yards after the catch. He had two kickoff returns for touchdowns against Southern Miss, including a 100-yarder on the game's opening play. Playing Jamison Williams is dangerous. He, I mean, arguably, if he would have been more involved in the offense early on, he might have had a 2,000-yard season over 100 yards. You know, if he got to an 80-90, 90-reception 90 season, he's just so explosive, getting the ball in his hands. He's a good returner. He reminds me of Cordero Patterson, but much more fluid in and out of his routes. Uh, like I said, former Ohio State guy, absolutely incredible season playing for Alabama Crimson Tide. Now we're moving on to the defense. Aiden Hutchinson. Hutchinson's return after breaking his ankle last November propelled the Wolverines to college football playoff, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, we know everything everything about Aiden Hutchinson if you're a Michigan fan, but he has 342 pass rush snaps. Hutchinson was able to create pressure on 17.5 of the time and caused 19 incompletions, two interceptions, and four turnovers. So, sometimes when people are like, look at the stats, look at the stats, look at the stats. Well, a lot of times if you watch how teams game plan to get around Aiden Hutchinson, it's three step, three, three step drops and get rid of the ball. So there was times in the Iowa game where he's pushing dude, he's pushing offensive linemen into the quarterback, or he beats the dude in a step and they just get rid of the ball quickly for an incompletion. So he's been dominant all time this year. Um, Jordan Davis, Georgia Bulldogs. Like I said, stat lines might seem underwhelming. 28 tackles, three and a half tackles for loss, nine quarterback hurries, and two sacks. But when you're 6'6, 340 pounds, and you have to be double teamed, and you have to be, you're eating up blocks left, right, and center, and you're clogging it up, and it's just impossible to play against you, that's one of those guys that you need to recognize and talk about. 
Jeremiah Johnson, the second Florida State, transferred from Georgia. So just imagine if this team had him at Georgia, named an All-American, but <clears throat> played at Florida State, became an every-down player. He had 70 tackles, 17 and a half tackles for loss, 11 and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, offensive touchdown, and 394 pass rushing attempts. He created 41 defreshing pressures and 12 incompletions. Will Anderson, obviously, I think another guy that was snubbed, but they weren't going to put two Alabama guys in there. Um, Anderson led the country with 15 and a half sacks, 31 tackles for loss, which is nine and a half more than anyone else. Anderson also won the Brooke Nolan Negrosi Trophy as the best offensive player in the nation, was second on his team with 92 tackles, while holding a team high, nine quarterback hurries, and two pass breakups. So, this man's stats were elite, but you got to remember that he's playing for Alabama, and Michigan has a really good defense, but Alabama's defense is always next level in terms of how they design stuff. And he got after the quarterback really, really well. But sometimes you ask your your rushers and stuff to do a bunch of different things. But Will Anderson, obviously, I mean, I don't see Kenny Pickett or C.J. Stroud here. So I don't know how they're getting Heisman accolades or Heisman nods when they're not even in a first team, like, you know, ESPN All-American. Like, you're not even All-American. Like, how can you even be competing, competing for a award that's as prestigious as that like you can't have all three of those quarterbacks you could have two I would agree with and then probably Kenneth Walker you can't have all three and that's just that's just my two cents in the finish up talking about Heisman stuff that's the last time I'm going to mention it until we get to the actual awards um N'Kobe Dean Georgia guy a lot and a lot of SEC talent on both sides in the trenches so far in the front seven that have been on this I think we had three SEC linemen we just had um three in a row, or three out of the last four SEC players in the front seven. So obviously these guys dominate. He had 61 tackles to go with five sacks, 8.2 tackles for loss, two interceptions, and two forced fumbles. The Buckkiss Award winner as a top linebacker, Nicobe Dean, has been one of those guys that has dominated and really controlled the defense. He's the guy that they go to for looks, for options, and he's the number one overall linebacker, uh, inside linebacker in the 2022 draft. He had a 50-yard interception return for a touchdown in Georgia's 34-7 route of Florida. Devin Lloyd for Utah, two-time finalist for the Buckus Award. Lloyd helped the Utah Utes win their first Pac-12 championship by leading the team with 106 tackles, 22 tackles for loss, four interceptions. His 22 tackles in the loss were the second most among FPS players, obviously behind Will Anderson. And his the junior had 13 tackles in back-to-back games against BYU in San Diego, a safety in high school. So safety bulked up a little bit, added some pounds to his weight, so he still has a straight-line speed. They're able to get through there. He's ranked as a number 25 prospect. Malcolm Rodriguez for Oklahoma State, uh, one of the best and most improved defense in the country. Rodriguez lead the pokes, so it's always weird. Oh, this is linebacker, sorry. I, I don't know why I read cornerback. He had 112 tackles to go with 14 tackles for loss, two sacks, nine quarterback pressures, three forced fumbles, two fumble recovers. After allowing 23 points per game in 2020, the Cowboys turned surrendered only 16.8. A big part of that was Malcolm Rodriguez, but something you also got to look at is this defense just got nasty, man. And that is in large part to having a dude who racks up 112 tackles, 14 for loss for you. But whenever you can have a guy that's as sure-handed and sure-tackling as Malcolm is, he just missed 11 tackles and 699 snaps. You have consistency, so some of your other guys can take risks to get after the quarterback because they know that with Mar- Malcolm Rodriguez behind him, 
They can get after him, and you know he's going to be that safety net. The two cornerbacks and the two safeties, um, as we wrap this up, Ahmad Gardner, Sauce Gardner, Cincinnati, dominant. You don't throw his way. It'll be interesting to see with John Mechie going out if Jamison Williams and uh, Sauce Gardner are lined up one-on-one and what happens on that end of the field. You have the cornerback for Auburn Tigers, Roger McCreary. Um, yeah, Auburn didn't have a great defense, but he was incredibly talented on stopping at least their best player. The other team's the best player. Had 49 tackles, two tackles for loss, one sack, two interceptions, 14 pass breaks up. He's listed as a number 13 prospect overall and number two cornerback behind LSU's Derek Stingley. Derek Stingley, um, I think, is going to drop in the draft. He hasn't been healthy the last two years, hasn't really shown the same maturity and ability as he did as a freshman year. Roger McCurry, Sauce Gardner, is one of those guys that may jump up there and be, you know, talked about. Verone McKinley the third for Oregon. Um, ball hawking safety from uh, Oregon that led the FBS with six interceptions and was second on his team with 72 tackles. So when you're a safety and you can tackle consistently, he was second on his team, and you have six interceptions, you're doing some good things right there. Um, the backbone of this Oregon team was in the secondary. Um, they also had uh, Penny Sewell's brother or cousin or whatever it was that was playing as like a linebacker safety hybrid. And obviously, they got routed in the trenches, but uh, that's neither here nor there, as McKinley has continued to prove himself um, year after year, and six out of his 11 career interceptions come in the red zone, which indicates that he's willing to make the big-time plays at the time. Jalen Pitieri for Baylor. Baylor obviously playing Oklahoma State, being kind of the the bounce backs and the rejuvenation of these defensive side of the balls. Um, Jalen Pietieri was named Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year at the time. He has three fumble recoveries, three forced fumbles, two interceptions. He basically plays one of those new hybrid, what Michigan used to call Viper positions. He had 17 and a half tackles for loss. He was thrown on teams with 55 tackles, two sacks, and five pass breaks up, break up. So he's kind of just a guy that maybe a Jamal Adams type role where he's flying around from one end to the other. He may not be as good of a ball hawk as you maybe want, but when you already have a dude with six interceptions on the back lines, you can get a guy that's kind of more hybrid that can play in this more flux, um, nickel heavy with all the passing attempts and attacks. Um, Matt Areza, San Diego State. All I'm going to say is go watch him stuff. Matt Areza, A-R-A-I-Z-A. This man's an incredible punter. He led the country with a 51.4-yard average, the most inside the 20, the most inside the 15. I mean, just absolutely incredible. Uh, Noah Ruggles, Ohio State's kicker. He led the country in 122 points a season. I always find it weird when we reward kickers for having really good offenses. Not not saying that Jake Moody should have won it, but Jake Moody literally hit kicks to win games. This guy hit kicks when they were up 20. Um, if, if you look at the stats, I agree Noel Ruggles deserves to be an All-American, but Jake Moody had, had kick after kick in crunch time. He didn't miss in crunch time. He beat Nebraska with the game-winning kick. He 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 consistently hit kickoffs. He's he he kicks everything into the end zone. I mean, absolutely incredible. Um, what Noel Ruggles was able to do. He was 18 of 19. He was a North Carolina transfer. But the um, 
He made four field goals and back-to-back victories against Penn State and Nebraska. In the Nebraska game, it was kind of the same thing where he had to kick field goals. But I, I think that Michigan and having a less good offense and less good attempts, it kind of hurt Moody because Moody didn't have as many points scored um, as a guy like Ruggles who's playing for Ohio State, and it kind of hurt his chances. Uh, Marcus Jones from Houston, uh, kick returner Jones, transferred to Houston from Troy in 2019, had a record-breaking impact on returns. Um he has nine career touchdown returns, six on kickoffs, three on punts, which is tied for SBS career lead with Boise State's Avery Williams and Washington's Dante Pettis. Uh, don't be surprised if this Marcus Jones guy turns in. He's a quarterback currently. Um, sometimes it's either two routes for these cornerbacks. They just turn into an offensive weapon. I'm thinking of Jamal Agnew, um, which was a former Lions. That's a return specialist. But return specialists are something that I really like to see a return of, LOL, no pun intended there, but um, in, in college football because it's always so much fun when, when you see these guys who are capable of changing, literally changing the dynamics of a game um, just with a single step, just with a single um, um, movement. And so many times we don't think about the importance of field positioning because we're, we're, we're watching you know offenses go back and forth in college football, but... In the pros, field positioning is everything that you need. And these returners, when they're incredibly good, I mean, you force teams to punt it out of bounds, lose some distance, don't get rollouts. I, I mean, those are the things that 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 change change the way that you know your team completely operates. Even if you're good, you know, your your team that's known for kind of pinning teams within the twenty or the fifteen, sometimes that isn't even possible. Sometimes you can't even allow that to happen just because you're like, I don't want this team to, to, to even get an opportunity to go out there and, and make a move on, on you. So um, there's a list of freshman teams. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to hold off freshman All-American teams for right now. Now, um, the only reason I'm doing that is because I really want to get through and talk about the NBA. I want to talk about the wings, and I don't know what list I'm going to use. ESPN hasn't up, hasn't dropped theirs yet, and maybe they won't. I, I don't know a lot about All-American lists. I, I just know that people like talking about them, so that's why I kind of have talked about them. Um, I don't I don't know the country of college football enough. I mean, the only thing that I can kind of see is... SEC has a lot of talented players that are making All-American teams. Georgia defense, who's been elite uh, year after year, they probably loaded the SEC, uh, All-SEC team, kind of like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan kind of loaded up on the All-Defensive team. But when you look at kind of everything, it, it, it's all it all shapes up at the end of the day, right? You don't really have to worry about whether this person made it because it's all irrelevant. It's not like they're getting paid bonuses and stuff like that on it. So... Um, breaking down the Pistons first, uh, the Pistons are 419. Um, the one bright spot is Cade Cunningham has been pretty damn good in his last handful of games. He's up to 14.9 points on six and 6.6 rebounds and 4.6 assists. So kind of doing what we anticipated. He wasn't going to be one of those pure scores immediately. He's going to have to figure out his game. Obviously, they did a lot of three-point shooting adjustments. Uh, his base, his hands, stuff like that. Uh, you can just tell in the way it looks he's shooting different. But if you look at his last three games, which are against Portland, Phoenix, and OKC, 
he had 26 against Portland on 70 on 76 percent shooting. He had 19 against Phoenix on 53 percent shooting, and he had 28 last night against OKC on 45 uh, percent shooting. All of those in losses. This Pistons team is so weird. I talked about it earlier in the year. They dearly dearly need three-point shooting, dearly need defensive help, but one of the things they need to do is have multiple guys play well during the same game. If Jeremy Grant has a good game, Cade Cunningham's off. If Isaiah Stewart puts in some big numbers, Cade Cunningham and Jeremy Grant are off. If Killian Hayes finds the basket more than three times per game, no one else can hit the broad side of a barn. So this Pistons team is always really, really weird in how they kind of play and how they approach things. Um, but but that's that's neither here nor there. I love the Pistons. They're going to probably get the first overall draft pick, which I'm happy about. Why am I happy about that? Because they're an irrelevant bump franchise right now. Um, moving on, we have. I'm going to go to standings, then I'm going to talk about some um, teams uh, individually. So I'm going to quick jump through standings, and then I'm going to talk about the teams individually that I really like. Brooklyn in the lead at 17-7. and seven. Chicago directly behind them at 17-8. Milwaukee, 16-9. Miami, 14-11. Washington, 14-11. Philly, 13-11. Charlotte, 14-12. Cleveland, 13-12. Atlanta, 13-12. Boston, 13-12. New York's 12-12. Toronto's 11-13. Indian, Indiana... Or Indianapolis, sorry, is ten and sixteen. Orlando's five and twenty, and Detroit is four and nineteen. So teams I want to talk about there is even without Kyrie, the Nets are still playing incredible basketball, consistent, know how to score when they need to. They put up big numbers offensively without that. James Harden and Kevin Durant are a dynamic duo. Chicago maintaining their spot in the number two seed right now. We, I, I kind of knew that going into the season that this team may take some time to gel, but they've gelled much quicker than, than I kind of ever anticipated. I think part of that reason and, and, and part of the reason that you can kind of see a team like Chicago gel so quickly is because they all kind of like have based backgrounds. They, they, they've been traded from a few teams. They haven't really found a sticking point. And now they found a group of players they want to play with where they can feel like they, when they put up good consistent numbers with Zach Levine, with Lonzo Ball, with DeMar DeRozan, that if they put their heart into it and they fight and, and build, they can build something really nice there in Chicago, which Chicago basketball is always uh, an incredible. I mean, you have Simeon down there. There's a lot of really good basketball that comes out of that area, one of the powerhouses in the Midwest over there. And so um, having them be relevant in basketball is really good. Uh, Milwaukee, we, we knew they would figure it out. We knew that this team would be capable of, of finding the ropes, of, of finding the ability to be a consistent and, and able-bodied team. And they found it, you know, just in time to kind of turn on the burners. You'd like to see their... Uh, uh, opponent points per game be a little bit lower just because of how historically they've defended so well, but they're kind of getting back up in there in their offensive efficiency as they've been one of the best scoring teams in the NBA, especially in the East the last few years, but as soon as they continue to lock down on their defense, and maybe that was the first few early blowouts, but I can kind of anticipate and kind of look to 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 what is, what is it going to look like down the stretch? What is it going to... Uh, kind of point to and this team's going to be good again uh I, I don't i don't think that you can stop Giannis. this man is absolutely dominant 
because he can hurt you in so many ways, and he's continually to in, he's continuing to involve his evolve his game to the point that if he, if he really develops a jumper, not not settling for jumpers, but when teams try and force him into jumpers, and he can hit it and dagger them and shift defenses. I mean, he he's already unstoppable. But that would be that would be he'd be the best player and the best peak probably ever ever with the way that he can score, rebound, and do stuff. Miami uh, has has found their footing. Uh, it, this will be an interesting to see how this team responds. They're 14-11 right now, tied with Washington, and only a half game ahead of Philly. Uh, this is a point in the season where a team like Miami, who I think is much better than either Washington or Philly, need to separate themselves from the pack and join that pack ahead of them before that pack loses them and leaves them behind. Uh, Miami has been incredibly inconsistent throughout the season. They have really high games where they're shooting and they're 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 making everything, and they have really low games where it just seems like their offense becomes stagnant. Uh, I think. Part of the reason for that is Jimmy Butler still hasn't fixed his shooting woes from last season. So Jimmy Butler is kind of a primary ball handler. And because there's so many shooters around him and the way that they run that offense, with Jimmy not being able to be a scoring threat from the outside, it limits what they can do and how many people can handle the ball. Because that offense is really based on spread concepts, on getting shooters open, uh, on moving and getting attack lanes, especially with a guy like Bam Adebayo also controlling the ball a good lot. Those are two really poor shooters on the floor at the same time. And as we've seen teams like the Suns, and um, uh, Washington kind of go with the concept of if we just have a lot of really good players that can spread the floor um, and, and, and make driving lanes available for some of our guys who aren't good, as long as that guy can be a consistent threat at some point so that they have to worry about him, we can really gouge up some teams and score some points. Next up, we have Washington. Um, Washington is the first team to be this high with a negative point differential this far into the season. It'll be interesting to see how that team bounces back. They're playing really good defense early on in the season, but their offense has certainly struggled too. They're averaging 105 points per game, and the only team lower than that is Cleveland, and Cleveland has some of the best defense, which Washington has been better than it usually has been the last few years. Washington has been one of the top scoring teams, and they kind of like roll reversaled it where they tried to play really good defense, and some of the old thorns in the side of this coaching staff have kind of popped up, and they simply aren't playing defense to where they were at the start of the season when I think they were the two seed, uh, I would say two or three weeks ago, but I think this Washington team has enough skill. It's just they're very young, and a lot of the people who are playing important key minutes haven't really been there before, so it'll be interesting to see how this Washington team moves forward. Um, Philly's starting to find themselves. Obviously, no Ben Simmons is a huge hole, and everyone can talk about how his, he has a lack of a jumper, and that's hurt their team, and I'll definitely argue it, but Postseason basketball and regular season basketball are two completely different beasts. And Ben Simmons is an all-star, consistently offensive, dynamic player week in and week out in this Philadelphia Philly or Philadelphia 76ers offense. And them not having him has been they've had to kind of refine themselves and retool and relook at how they kind of manage that offense and, and everything. So moving on from that, we're gonna talk about Charlotte, Cleveland, Atlanta, Boston. Um, and then move on. I'm not going to talk about New York until they can become a possibly playoff relevant team. Um, Charlotte has bounced back. They were really good and then they were really bad and now they've started to play really good here. Um, They don't defend. So they're letting up 116 points per game and the next closest team is Orlando at 111. This team cannot defend at all, which it's really hard to win in the NBA 
when you can't score. Now, they have one of the best offenses in the NBA, 115 points per game, but until they find some relativity and ability to get stops down the stretch, right? We can talk about the mid and the in-between game that you can put up a lot of points in there, but at the end of the game, when this team locks in in fourth quarter and they're down six, can you get one of those two key stops to push the game to 12, push them to a timeout, and then you can control and, and run the clock out? And Charlotte hasn't been able to prove themselves as that. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that goes forward. Um, we go to Cleveland. Cleveland has the worst offense um, points per game average. Now, they are one of the best defensive points per game averages, which makes sense. I mean, they have the freaks. They have, you know, three seven-footers right around there. Three dudes who are all 6'10 plus. And so they are able to defend. But they need more scoring offense, um, more capability of guys to score consistently in the guard position. And if that means rolling only two of those three big guys and going with a smaller lineup to get more offensive production. I think it's something you look at this. I know it's still early on in the season, but you want to find these rotations out now so that when other teams catch up on how to play your bigs, you have a lineup that can score a little bit more. Like if you have a bad defensive night and you need to sub out those bigs because they just keep getting scored on and they're not, they're not big enough or fast enough to stop them. You have to come up with an idea and come up with a design to, to, to really stop the other team from being able to run away with games. And sometimes I think Cleveland just gets into really bad track meets sometimes. And so they get blown out in some games. And then other games, they're able to just nick around with good teams because they play such good defense. Atlanta, they're one of the best offenses teams in the NBA is 111 points, second in the East. But um, at this point, it's, it's kind of... Trey Young and get on my way. They're seven and three out of the last ten, so obviously they've been bouncing back compared to where they were a little while ago. But it's always weird to see and, and weird how this team works. Trey Young obviously is the ball dominant guard, and they have a lot of good players around him. But I don't know if they have one of those number two superstars to pair with Trey that lets this team take the next next step. Now, last year we thought they took the next step. Obviously, they weren't quite there yet. Trey Young goes down with injury stuff like that, and they can't necessarily yield this team into a victory over, um, I believe it was Milwaukee, but it'll be interesting to see how this team performs at the end of the year, because they got a taste of the playoffs last year, if they can go out there and continue to fight, maybe they get another taste this year, Boston, one of the big disappointments this year is there was a lot of change in the front office with Boston, obviously with your coach becoming your new GM, and stuff like that. But uh, Boston has been so weird because there's some nights where they just lock down and clamp down defensively where no one can really do anything to them. And then there's other nights where people bash them and they get into a run out. This team doesn't really have an identity yet. Uh, I think it might find one by the half of the year and you might see them turn it on. They've already started to. They played a really close game against the uh, Lakers last week or last night and lost 6-4. to four. But uh, this team just doesn't have an identity yet. They don't know the right way they're they're supposed to play and how they're supposed to get after it. So until that happens, until you can, they can kind of find the piece in the middle of and in between everything, you're not going to see this team uh, win a whole lot of games because some nights they're going to come out and play really good defense. And you're going to be like, this is one of the better teams in the NBA. You know, they put up 115 and the other teams at 90. And then there's some nights where they let up 130 points. And then the next night they score 130 points. They're just such a topsy-turvy team. Sometimes I don't know how to react to them. Um, Golden State Warriors, 22. Phoenix Suns, uh, 20, or sorry, Golden State 20-4, Phoenix 20-4. The two top teams right now in the West. Phoenix suffered a loss the other night. Let's see who they lost to. Um, 
They lose at the end of November. So they beat the Knicks, the Cavs, the Nets, the Warriors. Who they lose to? Oh. Oh, and then they had to play the Warriors again. Sorry, I, I was like, oh, that's the Warriors game that already happened. Um, They played the Warriors again. God. Sorry about that. Um, the other night, and the Warriors ended up breaking their streak. But knowing the 76ers, or the Suns, sorry, they got right back on it. Um, Devin Booker didn't play in that game. He had a strained left hamstring, and Steph Curry had a much better performance. Um, it's always really difficult to stop Steph Curry two times in a row just because of how consistent and how um, how available they are at stopping the, these teams from you know putting their offense in a blender. They're always a step ahead. They're always making the next move. And um, these two teams are the top teams, I think, in the NBA. You can argue from uh, a standpoint on Brooklyn or Chicago, but I think that when the Warriors are playing their best ball, and especially when they get Klay Thompson back, if he's anything like his normal self, I think this team could run away with it. Um, or not run away with it, but run away the pack with the Suns. But I think this is a team, Golden State, that just got in a really bad matchup where they were in a one-team playoff against the Lakers and lost and very close, very emotional game, and they just didn't really have it uh, the next week against the Grizzlies. But they got it, they were able to get some rest. They still have players coming back from injury, um, so we shall see how this team kind of works out. Next up, you have the Utah Jazz. We knew they were going to find their footing. They're an offensive dynamo. dynamo. They're now better. I think they're second overall, but they're better than Golden State Warriors overall in points per game, 114. But the only difference right now is their defense obviously held down by Rudy uh, Gobert. Gobert is a freak in the middle. Some of the other guys around them aren't necessarily holding up to the same standards that you'd like to see. They aren't able to control as much stuff. But uh, really, when you when you look at it and, and you look at how good this Utah team has been playing. Uh, it's no doubt why they've been the number one seed so many years in a row, why they've been at the top. They have things figured out over there from the basketball standpoint. Um, this is going to be, a, a, I think, a tight three-team race with possibly the Lakers or the Clippers, depending if they find it, um, leading up the back end to be probably the four seed just because these teams have found their, their rhythm so much quicker than those teams. Now we go to the Grizzlies, and the Grizzlies have been playing really good basketball lately. They're 7-3 and three out of their last games. And their point differential is 111 to 110, but one of those games is a little skew mark here. They put up 152 points against the Thunder, and the Thunder only scored 79. It was one of the worst blowouts that you've seen in basketball history. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., former MSU guy, had 27. Dylan Brooks had 11. Uh, Steven Adams had 9. Tyus Jones had 10. Doug Bain had 2. Brandon Clark had 11. Aldama had 18. Tilly had 6. Tillman had 11, Concar had 17, Melton had 19, Culver had 11. I mean, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. They had eight guys in double figures. I mean, just absolutely incredible performance offensively by that Grizzlies team as they're looking to be a turning point. They were one of the teams that snuck into the playoff last year through the play-in games. I think they were either the 9 or 10 seed. I can't remember which one. But then they ended up beating the Warriors for the last and final eight-seed spot. I think they got pretty well handled in their playoff. But uh, this Memphis team is looking to take the next step, especially John Morant. They're a team that has put together a good amount of talent. Now, this team doesn't have a superstar yet. I think John Morant has definitely tried to impose himself and be one of those guys for his teams. He hasn't done it quite yet. But uh, this Memphis team, you have to look out for them because of how good they are. Next up, the two teams that I was just talking about, the Clippers and the Lakers. I think these teams are going to be battling it out. 
just because of injuries and inconsistency and the age of the roster. I don't think they're as good as the Golden State Warriors or the Suns, but they can definitely compete with Memphis or Utah. I think Utah is in a much better space and has gotten out to a much bigger lead. They're already four games ahead, but if either of these two teams find their stride and begin to turn it on, it is going to be in, in interesting to see how they play out. Now, when you look at these two teams in LA, they do things incredibly differently. LA is one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA, allowing 113 points per game. It is worst in the West. And let me just make sure. I think someone lets 114 up. Yep. The only worst team in the NBA is 100, uh, the Charlotte Hornets at 116. Now, the Lakers just give up on plays, and they're an older team, and there's just a lack of consistent effort there, and you can talk to me, oh, they're in the NBA, what are you talking about effort? Um, if you watch this team play, th there's times where if the other team gets an offensive board that like leaks out, they don't even go back on defense. They just give up points. Even if there's a two, if it's on a one and two, and they don't even go back there. I've seen like two or three offensive rebounds and guys just jogging like it's an open gym. Uh, that that team has to focus up. They're not going to win on just talent. They could have won on just talent probably four years ago when all of them are in their prime. But they're all much past their prime, except for probably Russ, who's on the back end of his prime, or LeBron's probably out of his prime entirely. Although his prime has lasted a lot longer than anyone kind of expected, but the LAC team, they defend 104.4 points a game, really good outside of the Warriors. They're in the tops in the league and close to everyone else, but they aren't as good scoring. I expect that to go back up when Kawhi eventually enters this lineup, and this already elite defensive team might get to that Golden State Warriors level. Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to produce the offensive potential that the Golden State Warriors have with Steph Curry, with that lineup, with the way that they move and cut without the ball. This team's offense is a little bit more ball dominant, and that leads them to lower scoring averages because they don't get as many possessions. So moving on from them, we have the teams in the middle looking to you know push forward. We have Dallas, Denver, Minnesota, and Portland. Minnesota being here is actually a bit of a surprise. Um, obviously, Minnesota has been dealing with it for a long time. They have Carl Anthony Towns. They just got, uh, what, Gordon? Or Edwards, Anthony Edwards, Towns. Uh, D'Angelo Russell has been a bit of a letdown since going there. Um, he hasn't been averaging kind of what they expected him when they traded him away from the Warriors. But uh, this Minnesota team, you know, they're they're doing okay. They're they're still trying to kind of find who they are, whether they rely on Anthony Edwards, whether they rely on Carl Anthony Towns. This this team has a lot of talent. Now I don't think they're more talented than any of the teams ahead of them, but there is a lot of talent on this Minnesota team, and I kind of want one or two things to happen. I want this season to go really well. They get a taste of the playoffs. They eventually make a move, a transaction to offload D'Angelo Russell to get a true point guard. Anthony Edwards is a scoring threat. He, he's a he's a he's a fiend out there out on the on the outskirts of the court. But they don't have a true point guard that can get. Towns into good elite runs. Um, he should be putting up, I mean, he puts up numbers next to DeAndre Ayton, but I think he's better than Ayton on the offensive side. Defensively, I think Ayton puts a little bit more effort in, but that's still an effort versus thing. But um, when you look at who Denver has, Denver just has to find their stride. Um, Jokic being out a few games, um, still working in. Um, this this lineup, this team loses like lost a game to the Magic, but then they come back and blow out the Nuggets, and then they get blown out by the Bulls, and now they're beating the Pelicans. They're just in a very up and down team at this point into the season, and that kind of reflects in their record that you know they may be you know they may be able to do a few things really well, but they still haven't been able to find it. And Monte Morris being their lead point guard, um, 
he didn't really bring the dynamic edge that they need, and they're still looking for scoring options on the outside. Aaron Gordon's playing like 25 minutes a game and scoring five points a game, uh, and that's still hurting them. They haven't looked the same since he's came onto that roster. Portland 11 and 14. Um, I don't even want to waste my breath kind of speaking about this team. This team is mirrored in mediocrity. Uh, Damian Lillard is never going to be able to get out of there with the ring. The reason why is two things. I don't think anyone wants to go to Portland. It's why I think teams like um, the Pistons need to draft well. Like, you can get a Jeremy Grant to go there, but you're not going to get anyone than Jeremy Grant. You need to get, like, a Cade Cunningham. And if Portland doesn't offload some of this, like, mid-tier talent, I think they're going to be stuck in kind of a cycle where they're stuck in mediocrity for a long time. Damian Lillard's career goes by. He's no longer the player that he once was, and he's trying to fight for relevancy, and they trade him way too late into his career. So kind of like Blake Griffin-esque, if Blake Griffin would have played for them for a long time. But Dallas... um, Dallas, Denver, and Minnesota, I see a lot of similarities in this team, not just in their record, but they have one of those players. And, and, and Dallas's, they kind of have two. They have, uh, uh, you know, Dallas has Luka Doncic, Kristaps Porzingis, but outside of that, their cast is okay, not great, and they haven't played great this year. Same thing with Denver. Like, except for Denver, Aaron Gordon hasn't been good, but you still get the, her, 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 not horrific, terrific stat line for uh, Nikola Jokic. And then Minnesota, you have D'Angelo, or you have Carl Anthony Towns, you have Anthony Edwards, and you just need D'Angelo Russell to kind of get back into his momentum where he's playing really good and consistent basketball. And they haven't been able to find that uh, any anywhere. And I know from an organizational standpoint, I mean, guys, I've watched the Lions for my 24 years of life. I mean, I know what it looks like for a chaotic environment to be around there. And Minnesota just seems like the place where careers go to die, where they just can't produce winners no matter what. And I don't know if the ownership needs to change or what needs to change, but that team is too talented to be stuck in mediocrity for so long for having a key cornerstone piece like Carl Anthony Towns. And everyone wants to be like, well, Carl Anthony isn't this good, guys. Carl Anthony is one of those dogs. Like, he's been good. It's not like this dude was average everywhere he went, and then he showed up there and was good. I mean, he was good in college. He was good in high school. He's been good his entire time. It's just they've never been able to find pieces around him that have complimented him, and I still don't think they have. Anthony Edwards is one of those freak athletes who can shoot it a little bit and gets to the bucket, so I think that's good, but they need like one of those pure shooters on the outside to space out the floor, to let these guys attack, and defensively, they need to figure out some things, but I really like the way this NBA season is kind of going to go ahead. I, I like the teams so far. I think the trade deadline is going to be crazy because I think there's a few teams, there, there's two things kind of going on. I think there's a few teams who think that they're close and then there's a few teams that are close. And it'll be interesting to see what teams and where they think they are and if they're willing to add players at the deadline. Um, it, it'll just be really interesting. Oh, three-pointers three made in a season. I talked about this, or made per game. Um, Steph Curry leads by 5.5. Buddy Heald is 3.6. CJ McCollum is 3.2. And Fred Van Vliet is 3.1. And Donovan Mitchell is 3.1. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Block leaders, Miles Turner, he's been a force down there in Indianapolis. Uh, 
Indianapolis has struggled the last few years, but that guy is a defender. If one of these teams needs another long, lanky defender, I wonder if anyone goes after Miles Turner to help solidify that inside. Rudy Gobert is 2.3. Anthony Davis is 2.2. Mo Bamba, one of those dudes who took a little bit more time to develop than we kind of thought uh, when he was at Texas. Um, he left early. Um, he got drafted by the Magic. Some injuries his few first few years, but he's averaging almost 2.2 blocks a game. And then Jaron Jackson, out of a power forward position, technically, uh, average two blocks, blocks per game. And then steals, you have Jimmy Butler, Alex Crusoe leading the way. So the NBA is obviously a lot of fun. Uh, I will be covering college basketball um, uh, on Friday. What I do need to talk about is the Monday night football game and tomorrow night football game. So Monday night's football game was awful. Um, one of the reasons why I hate football season is because it's one of the sports that's A, most affected by weather, and B, it's one of the sports that most stadiums don't accommodate for their weather. Um, for example, in Chicago, it rains a lot, and it also snows. Why does it rain and snow in Chicago? Because Chicago is right next to Lake Michigan, just like Michigan is. Guess what? It rains and snows a lot here too, but Chicago insists that Soldier Field play on shitty um grass in the north that gets stunted every single year. It's the same thing with Michigan State. Michigan State fans, I, I, I like your stadium. I've been there. You guys are fun to party with. But that grass sucks. And anytime it rains, it turns into a shit show. And it's not the grass's fault. You want to go and play. If you want nice grass, go to like Alabama, man. Go to these nice places where it doesn't rain as much. And if it is, it's so dry there usually that it just gets absorbed really quick that the playing surface isn't just a mud bowl. I hate watching games being played where literally no one can stand and then the field is completely chunked. It just looks awful. It's never fun. And when it gets cold out, you you lose so much traction on those fields. And I know on turf fields, you can lose a lot of traction too. You have that morning dew, but it's not anything like just chunking pieces out of the grass because of how soft it is. And another thing is when it gets cold out, that ground gets so damn hard. And some of the things that they can do with turf now is heat it up from the bottom. And and, and I mean, honestly, some of these stadiums should be indoor. Like if Soldier Field ever moves, Soldier Field should be indoor. Buffalo Stadium should be indoor. And you can be like, well, that's football. and, and Guys, do you want to watch a weather forecast or do you want to watch people play the game the right way and I'm not saying that you shouldn't have things like it should be a retractable roof where when it's 75 and sunny the roof can be completely open like it is for you know 10 weeks of the football season you know even let it unless it snows I don't care if you want a 32 degree game as long as it doesn't snow keep the keep the top open I don't care but I, I just hate watching these you know these games played in the, in the time of the year in the season in these stadiums that aren't meant for that you know it, it just looks absolutely horrendous why do you think they used to play 12 game seasons because the season ended before it got that you're playing in three feet five feet of snow like people, oh, I remember the frozen ball. Yeah, you remember it because it was shitty football. I remember the weather forecast. 14 to 10, Mac Jones threw the ball like three times, four times. Played two of them for 19 yards. Uh, Patriots are able to run against them consistently. I think they ran the ball like 40 times. Bills tried to do a lot but couldn't do it. Fumbles and turnovers caused that game. That's as much as you're going to talk about it. Last thing I'm going to note about it, sorry, is that the Patriots are now in first place in control of their you know, of their division in control of the AFC. Absolutely incredible. So now we have Thursday night game. Two teams that I don't know what to say. And so I wouldn't touch this game with a 90-foot pole. Steelers and Vikings. I have no idea. Steelers one week play like they have no idea what they're doing. Vikings just lost to the Lions when they really needed a win to go to 500. I don't know what this team's, what either of these teams can do. I know the Vikings are going to throw the ball to Justin Jefferson probably 12 times. Now, can they score the ball when they get in the red zone? I don't know. I know they're 
Could have run it with Alexander Madison. But are they going to be able to score consistently? I don't know. I know the Steelers' defense hasn't looked good for three weeks and then played really well last week, and I know the Steelers' offense has looked like shit for probably ten weeks, and they played really well last week, and they're able to you know, stabilize drives. I have no clue what this game is going to be, but I do know one thing. It's going to be absolute chaos because I don't think anyone has any idea how any of these games are going to go because the Steelers and the Vikings have been so damn inconsistent this year that I could flip a coin, and it would be heads or tails, and if it was like, hey, heads or tails, but a Lions or a Vikings player or Steelers player flipped it, I wouldn't know which to choose. I would choose like origami or some shit because how do I know that there's a heads and a tails on the coin? It's like these teams have like five different personalities that come out like every three weeks they come out with at least two. You know, sometimes they play a first half. They go in against Cleveland and... Uh, the, the Vikings, and they dominate the first quarter. They go out, they drive down the field, they try going for it on fourth down, they don't end up getting it... Um, Cleveland gets the ball, scores a touchdown. They go up 7-0. Um, the Vikings come down again, look look threatening, kick a field goal because of red zone rows, and then they move on, and then it's like, what the fuck? And then it gets to like late in the game, and it's 14-13, and this team, or 14-10, and this team settles for a field goal to try to not It's like things like that. Like I don't know how either of these teams kind of work. I do know one thing. This is not going to be a quarterback battle in the terms of I'm not going to be seeing who's going to be the better quarterback, but it is in terms of better quarterback or not who's going to play great. I'm, it's going to be in terms of better quarterback battle on who's going to not make the mistakes because Kirk Cousins, as much as I love him, outside of his consistent run game, he is inconsistent with the football. But when they can run it, he's very, very good. And Najee Harris has been okay this year, but he's been a volume guy. You haven't really seen the runs that you'd like to see. Part of that is this Pittsburgh offensive line is terrible, and you saw that in Ben Roethlisberger's protection. But you'd like to see Najee get involved more in the offense. One of the things that was highly touted about him is he's worked on his catching, he's worked on his catching. The Steelers team hasn't lined him up really a whole lot and used him to attack linebackers. And one of the things that this team, this Minnesota team has struggled with is pushing the ball down the field. So are you going to max protect and try to push the ball down the field with Deontay Johnson? I don't know. I don't know how this game is going to work out just because of how inconsistent these two teams have been. But I will say that these are two of my favorite color combos and uniforms in the entire NFL. I love the Vikings purple and yellow. It looks so clean. And imagine when the Lakers were there that both their teams had purple and and. Or, well, I think they had the Minnesota, like, baby blue, too. But I wonder if they changed it. You know, it's weird that Minnesota, you know, the Lakers obviously used to be in Minnesota. Land of 10,000 lakes. It's bullshit. They're all small ponds. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I do like both these uniform combinations. I hate that the Steelers helmet only has the, the logo on one side. I still think that's dumb. I'd like to see, like, a Steelers in script on the one side or just um, the the logo again. I, I don't know, but I just think it looks goofy. Um, we'll be talking about all the NFL games this weekend. Obviously, Monday night football is going to be crazy. I will let you know the environment over there. And I think it's State Farm Stadium right now. But with that being said, I'm going to wrap up the podcast. I know it was a little bit quick. Um, I'm I, Like I said, I'm going to be trying to get you guys out more and more content. But today was a little bit light day. Obviously, we don't have the big football season a lot to talk about in terms of that. We don't have a whole ton of NFL stuff. I went over the NBA pretty much in depth, but I didn't talk about individual games other than the absolute howitzer that Memphis shot into OKC's rectum. I will be getting to cover individual games, um, both in college and in the NBA. Probably starting Friday will be my first day to start talking about games individually, but I will pre be previewing um, 
none of the games, uh, college football, I probably won't even talk about it um, unless I find a really good All-American freshman team pool. Um, on another note, uh, don't forget to vote in my poll um, in regards to do you want me to cover it next week, Wednesday, or if you want me to go and cover it um, closer to the game day because uh, Alabama and Cincinnati would be the next week, and I'd kind of just do long 30-minute kind of breaking into you know trends in, in what these kind of tendencies are and stuff like that. Like It'd be pretty in-depth, so maybe you guys would like that. Um, listen to the podcast and then vote. Thank you guys. As always, the corners have been painted. You have a good night.